0: All right, good golly, this is dusting. <laughs> huh. Well, now I got to remember how to use this shit. Eh, I'll figure it out. Fuck it. Cue music.
1: Z's, I've been high above my ass Magic beans, magic beans, flying solo, Mr. Dolo, what you mean? What you mean? I've to major time. Do you read? Do you read? Smoking on gas, got this one. Chasing and chasing I've been high above my ass. Magic beans, magic beans, flying solo, Mr. Dolo, what you mean? What you mean? I'll control the to major time. Do you read? I'm back in the game and I'm feeling myself Quick level up, now I'm building myself Every day never taking breaks, killing myself Addicted to the gold, only focused on wealth Still slide to my 9 to 5 Step out the time till I'm on the rise Passing off, I'm not asking This ain't frat, rap, tell that haters fuck off I'm shining, so blinded As a vibe, don't got no diamonds Broke boy, got nothing in my wallet Spend on my green on the green quite often Still flawless, stand taller Say fuck it to me, face calling. Time to ride the wave, ride the shade Inhale to ace, a lovely yes, so got me slump Chasing Z's, chasing Z's I've been high above my ass Magic beans, magic beans Flying solo, Mr. Golo What you need, what you need Ground control the Major time, Do you read
0: Remember me? Yeah, I know, I know. I'm back. Holy crap, I barely remember how to use any of this stuff. I, uh, it took me like 15 minutes just to get my monitor to start up, but I am on track now. See what I did there? I'm on... Anyway. Yeah, it's been a minute. So, let's start with a big thank you to the steady listeners from around the world that just kept listening through this whole downtime Um, I'm really humbled by that And I thank you And whether it's from here in the US Or England, Portugal, Brazil, South Korea Aussies, I see you Uh, Cape Verde I don't know where you are um, But I see and appreciate you Ecuador, Ireland, Mexico Thank all of you for continuing to listen And we are back on track, like I said For a monthly release And... That's probably where it's going to be at this point, And then I hope to kind of increase it in the future. But so, yeah, life sometimes kicks us till we fall down. And uh, it did. And I did. And it took some time to put myself back together. But I did. And here we are again. So I have a great show for you. Uh, we have Dracula's blood, tears, demonic rat cats at the U.S. Capitol that aren't Jim Jordan. A man who can't stop eating. Green kids in woolpit. Moon-eyed people. Of the Cherokee, and a whole lot more. So let's uh, let's get to it. And we're back. So let's, uh, we got all kinds of stories here. Let's start with why the U.S. Capitol's demon cat legend is so persistent. And this is out of Atlas Obscura. Uh, And it says it has a lot to do with Paul Prince. And this is a little bit older article, but I found it and I thought it was pretty cool. And we haven't talked about it before. But apparently over the last two centuries, the U.S. Capitol building, with its underground passages and echoing side chambers and complete chaos, nightmare of idiocy, has amassed its fair share of ghost stories. Whether it's the specter of a lost Civil War soldier from the building's brief stint as a wartime hospital, or the ghost of John Quincy Adams shouting his final words in the speaker's lobby, the Capitol building is a ghost hunter's dream. But few such stories have captured the public's imagination like that of the demon cat. It's probably the most common of all the ghost stories in the Capitol, partly because of the physical evidence, says Steve Livingood, the chief tour guide of the U.S. Capitol Historical Society. Tales from the spectral feline known as the Demon Cat, initials DC. (laughs) Get it? (laughs) These date back to at least the 19th century. Since joining the USCHS in 1973, Livingood has become an expert in the tale. Now uh, there'll be notes for this in the show notes, of course, and there is a couple pictures here that show the little paw prints and stuff like that. If you want to check it out, the story probably goes back to post Civil War era. The main thing is that the people who would see it, particularly were the night watchmen, says Livingood. The most common version of the legend goes that a guard was on patrol one night when he saw a black cat approaching. Now in those days, cats were not an uncommon sight in the building introduced to control the rodent population. However, as the cat came closer, it grew in size until it was as large as a tiger. The monster cat pounced on the guard who fell down and tried to protect himself, but the creature vanished in midair. And uh yeah, I guess that was too long ago to have been Marjorie Taylor Green, but I'll let that go. Just you know, if you're gonna talk about demonic pussy. No sorry. Where was I? Like most ghost stories, tales of the demon cat have a number of variations. Later sightings are said to have scared people to death. The cat's appearances have also been linked to national tragedies and presidential transitions. What's kept the legend alive all this time? Why does it persist? A couple of features in the Capitol's building are said to be evidence of the demon cat's existence. The most famous of these is a group of shallow paw prints in the concrete of the small Senate Rotunda. In 1898, the Capitol building was damaged by a gas explosion, from all the hot air, I assume, and according to Living Good, in some spots the original stone was replaced by concrete. It's quite possible that a cat just walked across the wet concrete, he says, just enough to leave some impressions. It's as you come out of the old Supreme Court chamber. There may be six or eight pretty clear ones. Now, in another part of the building, Good also notes that the letters DC have been scratched into the concrete. Everyone says that's the demon cat putting its initials there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's got to be what it is, right? Of course. As much fun as it is to believe that there's a monster cat prowling the midnight halls of U.S. Capitol, living Good isn't having it. I can put enough pieces together to show where the legend came from, he says. The night watchmen were not professionals. They would often be some Senator Ne'er-do-well's brother-in-law that had a drinking problem. Nowadays, we, you know what we call them? <laughs> oh Senator, yeah... Yeah, Livingood's theory is that early capital guards would often get so drunk they'd fall down. So when one of the building's cats came in and licked their face, they assumed it must have been monster-sized. But when the guard in question reported their ravings to his superior, the boss couldn't really discipline him for drinking because of his high-powered connections, so the guard would simply have been sent home to recover. Then the other guards realized that if they see the cat and get attacked... Then they can get a day off, and that's how history gets written," said Livingard "I am, um, I'm not thinking my boss would, uh, would, uh, would fall for this, but maybe yours will. Give it a try." Livingood says that while he regularly gets asked about the demon cat or sees visitors using their cell phones to illuminate the faint paw prints in the small Senate Rotunda, he's never heard of a modern sighting of the creature. I've never had anyone who felt they had an experience like that, he says. Still, Livingood sees ghost stories as an important part of the building's history. They humanize the building, he says. One of the things I try to get across to people as I'm giving a tour is that the spirit of the people who built the building... And the people who have acted out the history in it are still there, and you can feel it. So that is the demonic cat legend of the D.C. Capitol. (laughs) And off to my foreign listeners, (laughs) you wonder why we're all so messed up over here. It's obviously the evil pussy roaming the Capitol that isn't Marjorie Taylor Greene or Jim Jordan. Anyway, I digress. Let's see what we got next here. Uh, Look around. What do I got in the drawer? Oh, here's a good one. Like I mentioned earlier, Vlad the Impaler. Dracula namesake cried tears of blood, study suggests. Now, this is out of Science Alert, so (laughs) it must be real, right? Yeah. So a chemical analysis of the letters of the legendary historical figure reputed to have inspired fictional vampire Dracula has revealed Vlad Draculia, a.k.a. Vlad the Impaler, may have cried tears of blood. Traces left behind on the paper by the 15th century ruler of Wallachia suggest he was afflicted with a condition known as hemolacria, which manifests as the presence of blood in tears, and he may have had skin and respiratory conditions besides. To our reckoning, writes a team led by chemist Maria Gaetana Giovanna Petala of the University of Catania Cet- of in Italy, this is the first time such research has been carried out and has helped to bring to the limelight the health status of Vlad Dracula the Impaler. Vlad Dracula, also known as Vlad Tepes, was certainly a towering figure in European history. His exploits as ruler of Wallachia are almost mythical, in particular the extremely bloody lengths he went to in order to protect his land from multiple conflicts. It's unknown how many deaths he's responsible for, but estimates put it at over 80,000, and an estimated over 20,000 of those were impaled on wooden spikes not to mention all the other forms of torture of which has been disputedly accused. Although his life and deeds have been well documented, in many cases no doubt exaggerated, there are some details that we are likely never to know, but Petala and her colleagues thought there may be a way to find out, by studying objects that Dracula is known to have touched, namely letters the man himself penned. Letters are an absolute treasure trove for historians. So in this case, however, it was not the contents of Dracula's letters that interested the researchers, but what secrets may have been left behind on the paper, the molecules and the proteins that may have been transferred by human touch. The letters are now over 500 years old, and extracting material from them could cause damage, which is not ideal for precious historical documents but the recent development of a special film of ethylene vinyl acetate created with ion exchangers and water-repelling resins that have been used to promising effect with ancient fabrics and papers. When applied to any type of surface, this film is able to extract proteins and molecules without damaging the surface. The team used these films on three of the Vlad Dracula letters, one dated 1457 the other to 1475, and used mass spectrometry to analyze the results. They found thousands of peptides and proteins. They focused on signals of human biology, and because many people have handled the letters over centuries, only the human material with the most advanced degradation. The results were certainly interesting. It seems two of the proteins the researchers found could indicate a genetic respiratory disorder that results in chronic lung and sinus infections. They also found peptides belonging to proteins associated with inflammatory processes. Put together, this suggests a skin or respiratory disorder, or perhaps both. They also found peptides associated with proteins of the retina and tears, and also found blood proteins. There were reports, the researchers assert, that Vlad Dracula cried bloody tears. Indeed, the concept has been popular in fictional depictions of Dracula. Although far from a smoking gun, this suggests that there may be some truth to that rumor. Although proteomic data here reported although cannot be considered exhaustive alone, might indicate that, according to some stories, he probably suffered, at least in the last years of his life, from a pathological condition called he- hemolacria. That is, he could shed tears mixed with blood. Setting Rumor and Vlad Dracula aside, the research is interesting for other reasons. The investigation of the three letters yielded thousands of peptides from bacteria, viruses, fungi, insects, and plants that offer a fascinating window into the Wallachian life in the 15th century. Most of the bacteria, for example, form a normal part of the human gut flora, but there were some that indicated intestinal or urinary tract infections. They also found peptides associated with Yersinia pestis, the cause of the Black Death. Other molecules suggested the presence of fruit flies, tick and mosquito-borne viruses, the types of mold that grow on rotting fruit. These results, the team said, offer promise that their techniques can be used on other ancient documents, revealing more about the inner workings of time long past. And the research has been published in Analytical Chemistry. So, that's fascinating. I'm not sure exactly what it tells us, but it's certainly fascinating. I mean, I don't know how they specifically limit things to make sure that it's just from the. I understand by they went by the earliest, most degraded stuff, but that's fascinating. I wonder what more, what else could we do? What else could we, what other documents would be interesting, like the Magna Carta or the Constitution or. What do you suggest? Put it in the comments when you comment. Leave a comment. How about that? And uh, we'll check them out later. Let's see. Let's see what else we got here. Let's do uh, The Green Children of Woolpit. So <clears throat> this is out of uh, ATI. And uh, really fascinating. I had never heard this story before. And it's, uh, again, another really fascinating story that could be weird, aliens, ghosts. Maybe it's completely normal. Let's get into it. So in at least two historical accounts, children with green skin appeared in the English village of Wolpit in the 12th century. But to this day, this strange tale continues to leave historians baffled. On an otherwise normal day, around 1150, residents in the English village of Woolpit made a startling discovery on the edge of town. Two small children with green skin not only did the children look strange, but they also spoke a strange language and seemed perfectly repulsed by most food. Taken in by the villagers, the odd pair eventually lost the green tone in their skin and learned to speak English. They claimed that they'd come from a distant land called St. Martin, where people rarely encountered sunlight. In the years since, the green children of Woolpit have become a baffling historical mystery. One, if they truly existed, what turned their skin green? And what was the land of St. Martin? And could the explanation be extraterrestrial? The story of the green children of Woolpit was recounted by two different chroniclers, the 13th century historian William of Newburgh and the 12th century abbot Ralph of Cogshaw. But Newburgh and Cogshaw both tell a similar story of how two green children appeared in the village of Woolpit. As the tale goes, the two children were discovered by villagers around the year 1150. Historic UK reports that they were spotted crawling out of one of the pits meant for catching wolves that gave the village its name. Woolpit, in Old English, is wolfpit. Most startling of all, they were green. During the harvest, while the reapers were employed in gathering in the produce of the fields, Two children, a boy and a girl, completely green in their persons and clad in garments of a strange color and unknown materials, emerged from these two wolf pits. Newberg recounts in his Historia Rerum Anglicarum, History of English Affairs, from 1220, Not only were the children green and clad in strange clothes, but they also seemed to speak gibberish. Cogshaw reports that they were taken to the home of Sir Richard de Cowne, who lived nearby. But though de Cowne offered the green children food, they refused to eat any of it. Uh, again, there'll be this will be in the show notes, and there are pictures of what a, an example of a wolf pit from Bavaria would look like, so if you want to check that out. Uh, After a few days of this, the green children of Wolpit discovered some green beans growing in the Cowne's garden and eagerly gobbled them up. Before long, they reportedly took to eating the food the villagers offered them as well, and began to lose the green tinge of their skin. Though the little boy grew sick and sadly passed away, the girl seemed to flourish under the villagers' care. Before long, she mastered the English language and told the people of Woolpit a very strange story about their homeland. The girl, who took on the name Agnes Barr, according to ancient origins, eventually told the villagers that she and her brother had come from a place called St. Martin, but she wasn't sure how they'd ended up in Woolpit. On a certain day, when we were feeding our father's flocks in the field, we heard a great sound, such as we are now accustomed to hear at St. Edmund's, when the bells are chiming, she said. And while listening to the sound and admiration, we became on a sudden, as it were, entranced, and found ourselves among you in the fields where you were reaping. Upon further questioning, she said that her country was Christian, and had churches, but otherwise was quite different from England. The sun does not rise upon our countrymen. Our land is little, cheered by its beams. We are Contented with that twilight which among you precedes the sunrise or follows the sunset, she explained, according to Newberg. Moreover, a certain luminous country is seen, not far distant from Mars and divided from it by a very considerable river. But no one has ever found out where exactly the Green Children of Woolpit came from. As Mental Floss reports, The girl, Agnes, apparently lived a fairly normal life, although some sources state that she became rather loose and wanton in her conduct in her later years. So, who were the Green Children of Woolpit, and what was the land of St. Martin? So, although it's unclear whether or not the Green Children of Woolpit ever truly existed, their story has fascinated people for centuries. Today, there is a few possible explanations for the children's skin, clothing, and their language. As Mental Floss explained, they may have been poisoned with arsenic and left to die, which could explain their green-toned skin. It's pretty grim. Another explanation for their green skin could be chlorosis, which results from malnutrition and may explain why their green skin faded away as they adjusted to a better diet. As for their strange language and clothing, Historic UK notes that they may have been children of Flemish immigrants who were killed by King Stephen or King Henry II. Thus, what the villagers in Woolpit took as gibberish might actually have been Dutch, and the twilight described by the children could have been the leafy darkness of nearby Thetford Forest. Then again, others have offered some very different explanations. As Ancient Origins explains, some claim that the children's green skin, strange clothes, and unintelligible language are a sure sign that they must have come from outer space. This theory appears to have first been put forward in the 17th century when Robert Burton wrote in The Anatomy of Melancholy, 1621, that the green children of Woolpit fell from heaven. Though there's little evidence to back this theory up, it's certainly true that there were some overlap between the story of the Green Children of Woolpit and modern descriptions of aliens as little green men. Of course, there are also some who say that the Green Children of Woolpit never even existed at all. To William Newberg, who chronicled their story, this is of no matter. In his account of the children, he wrote, Let everyone say as he pleases and reason on such matters according to his abilities. I feel no regret at having recorded an event so prestigious and miraculous. So, we don't know, really, in the end, which is strange. But in the end, we have no clue whether they were real or not. But I leave it up to you. Tell me what you think. Leave a comment. Tell me what you think. Maybe they were, maybe you won't. Maybe you live in Woolpit and you have a better angle. Definitely want to hear it. All right, let's see what else we got here. All right, let's do the life of Terer, the eerily mysterious life of Terer, the man who couldn't stop eating. This is a weird and fascinating tale. So the story of Terer is definitely one of a kind. This man had a unique gift. He had a huge appetite. Terer was always hungry and able to eat an unfathomable amount of food. His entire body seemed to be designed for just one purpose, eating. Terer's story involves show business, war, espionage, medical experiments, and most shockingly, a mysteriously missing baby. Get in my belly. We're warning you, this story is not for the squeamish. So... Born in Lyon, France around 1972, Terrar was an unusual child from the very beginning. He was always hungry. No matter how much his parents fed him, by the time he was a teenager, he ate his own body weight in beef in a single day. To put that into context, the average human needs to consume around 5% of their own mass each day. Little is known around uh, about the background of Terrar, or even if Terrar was his real name. But it seemed clear that keeping their insatiable child fed was a financial burden for his parents, who were uh, just barely able to endure. Um, Sometime before his 16th birthday, Terrar's mom and dad were left with no option but to turn him out and force him to fend for himself. After being kicked out, Terrer joined a nomadic band of bandits, as one does, and sex workers, but of course, and he drifted from place to place. He would beg for food when he could, stealing when he needed, and after a while he joined a group that purported to be a traveling circus, again, as one does. They would perform freak show style acts in order to draw and distract crowds for easy pickpocketing, and Terrer's act was something no one had ever seen before. Terrer's job was to do what he did best, eat. He would stretch his jaw to devour baskets of apples as though they were bags of nuts. He also ate objects such as corks or stones. It seemed like there was nothing Terrer could not ingest, and the crowds in every single place they visited lapped up the spectacle of his gluttony. Inanimate objects and fruit weren't the only things Terrer would eat to excess. He also picked up a habit of consuming live animals. He seized a live cat with his teeth, disemboweled it, sucked its blood, and ate it, leaving the bare skeleton only, said one witness to Tereira's increasingly disturbing stage act. He also ate dogs in the same manner. On one occasion, it was said that he was swallowing a live eel without chewing it. Snake meat was a particular favorite of Tereira's, his reputation was so gruesome that it seemed even the animals knew to keep out of his way. The dogs and cats fled in terror at his aspect, wrote the military surgeon Baron Percy, as if they had anticipated the kind of fate he was preparing for them. So now we're in it's 1788, and he's in his late teens. terreur swapped countryside wanderings for regular performances in Paris. There, among the grand boulevards and wealthy citizens, the rapacious young man found a way to fill his pockets, even if he couldn't fill his belly. But one day, during his unusual wolfish performance, he had a sudden and severe intestinal obstruction. Terreiro was saved after onlookers took him to the Hotel Dieu Hospital, where he was administered strong laxatives. When he recovered, Thoreau offered to eat the surgeon's watch and chain as a sort of performance merci. The surgeon, M. Girald, refused and warned him that he had the tools to cut the irrepressible eater open and would not hesitate to do so whatever was necessary to get his stuff back. What was especially puzzling for anyone who saw Thoreau was his appearance. Despite his constant and excessive eating, At 17 years old, he weighed no more than 100 pounds. He also seemed to be mentally competent in every way, aside from eating anything he could get his hands on. The main physical sign of Terre's bizarre lifestyle was his stretched and sagging skin. The constantly famished Frenchman had a regular process which went as follows. First, he would eat until he was bloated, like an inflated balloon, then he would find a bathroom and create a situation that was once described as fetid beyond all conception. This would leave him empty once again so the routine could be repeated. As a result, Terreir's skin, from his head to his waist, hung down in huge folds whenever his body was not filled. That's so weird. So basically, he's is it bulimic? Forced bulimic? Bulimia? I don't but why would it stretch his skin like that? It's so weird. Another unpleasant physical aspect of Terre's eating was often noticed before he even came into view. According to his official medical notes, Terre often stank to such a degree that he could not be endured within the distance of 20 paces. It was observed the Frenchman's odor became significantly worse in the time immediately following a feast. Torreira was described as having red cheeks, bloodshot eyes, and a vapor that could be seen visibly rising from his body, like stink lines in a comic book. Other descriptions of Torreira suggest his hair was surprisingly soft while his mouth was surprisingly large. His teeth were discolored and his lips were so thin as to be almost unnoticeable. The skin on his stomach, which at its most loose, could be tied around his waist like a belt. When Terer was around 19 years old, the war of the First Coalition broke out and France found itself under fire. Keen to stand up for his country, Terer gave up his performances and joined the French Revolutionary Army. However, Terer quickly found it hard to survive on soldiers' rations of food. He performed odd jobs in exchange for shares of his comrade's food, but it didn't satisfy Terir's needs. He began scavenging for scraps in the waste, but eventually had to be hospitalized for extreme exhaustion during his recovery. The army quadrupled terrer's rations, but it still wasn't enough. He searched through the gutters and garbage piles he ate whatever was left behind by other patients. He even snuck into the apothecary's room to eat the poultices. After this, the military surgeons couldn't contain their curiosity any longer. Rather than discharge to the surgeons Dr. Corville and Baron Pierre-Francois Percy decided to use the opportunity to get to the bottom of his condition. During his treatment and convalescence, Hospital staff were forced to take the role of guards whenever meals were served on the premises. If they had not, it was likely the food would end up inside Terre rather than in its intended recipients. When Corville and Percy learned a meal of two large meat pies, plates of grease and salt, and four gallons of milk had been freshly prepared for fifteen workmen near the hospital entrance, They ordered everyone to stand back and let Torreira do his worst. According to the doctor's report, their patient ate every morsel and then fell asleep as his stomach ballooned. While Corville and Percy were focused on trying to learn more about what made Torreira the way he was, another military man spotted an opportunity. Realizing he had a soldier who could seemingly fit any object into his stomach and expel it again in a timely manner, Gen- General Alexandre de Beauhar- Beauharnais? Beauharnais came up with the idea of feeding Terrer wooden boxes filled with secret notes. Oh, this isn't going to end well, is it? Once Terre ate the box, he would be sent through enemy lines where he would eventually pass the note, in more ways than one. Eager to serve, Terre agreed, and after a dry... <laughs> run at the hospital, swallowed an important message for a captured French colonel who was being held near Nuttstadt in Prussia. Disguised as a peasant, Terre dutifully carried his internal instructions into enemy territory. General Beauharney's plan wasn't as successful as Terre had hoped. Between his odd appearance, his awful odor, and his complete inability to speak any German whatsoever, it didn't take long for Terer to be noticed by Prussian officials and captured. The soldiers were given the inevitable task of removing Terer's clothes and performing a thorough search before subjecting their prisoner to interrogation and torture. Unaccustomed to this treatment, Terer soon gave up the plan. All the Prussians would need to do to find out if their suspected spy was telling the truth was wait. Terreira was chained up while everyone waited for nature to take its course. Once it did, someone would be given the grim task of sifting through Terreira's expulsions and retrieving the box hidden within them. Now, Terreira's evacuated message was eventually cleaned up and revealed to the Prussian officers. It turned out to be a dummy message of General Bauharnes, rather than offer valuable details of any French plot or activity. All the note asked was for the recipient to confirm they had received it. In frustration and anger, the Prussian general Zaugli ordered Terra's execution. Dun dun dun. A gallows was constructed, and this sorrowful spy was marched to what would be the final act of his bizarre life. Sometime between the rope being placed around Terer's neck and the order being given for him to jump, General Zogli had a change of heart. Whether it was an act of mercy or pity, we don't know, but Terer was removed from his execution site, beaten, and returned to France. Perhaps it was the gallows that Terer decided it was time to change his life. Or perhaps it was while he sat alone in a cell waiting to pass the wooden box sliding its way through his intestines. Whenever it happened, the French glutton did some soul-searching, and during the war, he returned with a determination to do something about his constant debilitating hunger. Terreir begged Baron Percy to help him fix his appetite once and for all. There was no medical template for this kind of condition— but Percy did what he could. He tried laudanum, but it had no effect. He tried wine vinegar, tobacco pills, oh, but Terrer remained unchanged. In desperation, Percy tried feeding his patient huge numbers of soft-boiled eggs in hopes it would stifle his hunger. It did not. So, while Baron Percy was trying and failing to solve Terrer's situation with medical intervention, the patient himself was forced to find increasingly desperate ways to satisfy his never-ending hunger. When the hospital did not provide Terra with enough food, he escaped into town where he would compete with stray dogs for rotting meat at the side of the road or beg butchers for spare offal. Things started getting weirder, if <laughs> they weren't weird enough. When Terer was caught drinking blood that had been let from patients or even nibbling on corpses in the hospital's morgue, pressure began to mount for Terer to be moved to an asylum. But Percy was adamant the military hospital was the best place for any treatment to be carried out. That's when a 14-month-old baby disappeared and all eyes turned to Terer, and we're going to find out whether Terraria had something to do with that or not in just a minute. We'll be right back. Hi, Gaz here. Do you enjoy Bizarro Aficionado and would like to help out the show? Now, don't worry. I'm not asking you for a dime. Just leave a comment, subscribe, or follow the show so you get each episode as it's uploaded. Comments really help the show, and subscriptions help it move up in the ranks among the other 4 million shows in the world. So be a gem, and leave a comment, or like, or follow, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Hey, and we're back. So... When we left, <laughs> a baby is missing and Terreir is suspected. Now, there was never any proof or real evidence that Terreir had anything to do with the missing baby, but he was chased out of the hospital anyway. And it was 1798, four years later, when a message sent from Versailles Hospital, signed by M. Tessier, alerted Baron Percy that a terminally ill Terir had been admitted and was asking for him. Percy obliged and made the journey. Terir believed his discomfort was being caused by a golden fork he had swallowed in 1796, which had never re-emerged, but Percy quickly established a real issue. Torreira was dying of tuberculosis. He remained in the hospital for around a month before suffering a severe bout of diarrhea and succumbing to his illness. The man who ate everything died with Percy by his side. He was, at best estimate, just 26 years old. At first, the surgeons at Versailles refused to touch Terrer's body due to its rapid decomposition, For Percy and Tessier, however, the curiosity was too much. There was also the matter of a possible golden fork to find. An autopsy was performed, but was halted halfway through when doctors could no longer cope with the smell. Like the odors which emanated from Terre's rotting body, the autopsy results were enough to turn the stomachs of the dead. The entrails were putrefied confounded together and immersed in a giant layer of pus. Terre's report read, The liver was excessively large, void of consistence, and in a putrescent state. The gallbladder was of considerable magnitude. The stomach, in a lax state, and having ulcerated patches dispersed about it, covered almost the whole of the abdominal region. What was discovered from Terre's autopsy Before it was abandoned, was that his gullet was unusually large. A note was made that a cylinder of a foot in circumference could be introduced without touching the plate, the palate. His stomach was, perhaps unsurprisingly, also much bigger than the doctors had seen before, and filled almost the entire cavity of the body. After the procedure, the surgeons could only conclude that the voracious appetite which had dogged Terreira's entire life had been due to his physical needs, not his mental ones, and that all he had ever been doing was trying to fill his oversized organs in the same way as any of us might. Disappointingly, the mysterious golden fork was never found. So while the story of Terreira is unusual, it's not entirely unique. A Polish man named Charles Domery lived around the same time, believed to have been born in 1778. Domery also served in the War of the First Coalition, but on the side of the Prussian army. According to legend, Domery ate cats, 174 of them in one year. If he couldn't find any cat, he would eat huge quantities of grass. While serving as a sailor, he attempted to eat the severed leg of a fellow crew member before being stopped by his shipmates. A more recent example is Michael Lotito, an entertainer who lived from 1950 to 2007 and went by the stage name Monsignor Mangental, or Mister Eat It All. So, and to my French listeners, I uh, will go ahead and apologize for every single pronunciation so far many freak show artists lead somewhat lavish lives of fame although some born with unfortunate deformities but people like terer didn't get so lucky and neither did lobster boy born in pittsburgh pennsylvania grady Stiles already knew he was going to be a circus star as was his family's tradition and we discussed him in an earlier episode maybe in like season one or two but uh Yeah, crazy, crazy things. Um, I don't know what to make of that. So again, go in, be happy to uh, leave a message, and uh, tell me what you think. All right, let's see. I think let's cover the most haunted road in America. And this is off of Ocean County's Best Variety 92.7 W-O-B-M. The most haunted road in America is in New Jersey, according to TikTok. Well, if TikTok says it, who am I to argue, right? When it comes down to it's TikTok in New Jersey, who could ask for anything more? So the spooky season is just about upon us, and many of you may be looking for some cool haunted places to visit if you're on the east coast of the states. There are haunted trails, haunted houses, haunted hayrides, haunted mazes, to name a few. But have you ever been on a haunted road? According to Sixth, the hunt is on for the spookiest roads across the U.S., with searches for haunted roads up 126% in the past month alone. Cool, right? Well, we've rounded up the 10 most haunted roads across the nation, according to TikTok. Two of those haunted roads are in New Jersey, and even cooler, one of those Garden State Roads is the number one most haunted road in the nation. Clinton Road in West Milford is considered to be the most haunted road in the U.S., according to TikTok. The road is associated with Ghost Boy Bridge. There have been around 107 ghost sightings on the road with 8.7 million views on TikTok. Locals tell the story of a young boy who lost his life when he was hit and killed by a car on one of the bridges over Clinton Brook when he went to pick up a quarter he saw on the ground. The ghost boy apparently hangs out under a bridge and returns coins to people after they throw them in the water. Some say that if you bend over to pick up the change, he'll push you into the water to save you from being hit by a car. Another haunted New Jersey road that made the top 10 list is Shades of Death Road in Warren County. (laughs) Charming. The road is associated with a series of fatal occurrences. There have been 107 ghost sightings on the road and 89.6 thousand views on TikTok. According to WeirdNewJersey.com, Shades of Death Road has been a dark, mysterious thoroughfare for travelers to cut across one of the most isolated parts of New Jersey for centuries. Legend has it that the original inhabitants of the area were an unruly band of squatters. Men from this gang would get into fights over women, and the squabbles would result in the death of one of the participants. As the reputation of these murderous bandits grew, the area became known as Shades of Death. When the gang was disbanded, the last remaining member took control of this one road that retained the name they made famous. There's another theory that says the road was originally known as the Shades because of its low-hanging trees which formed a canopy over the street. Over time, many murders occurred there. Many of those murders have remained unsolved, causing locals to add the of death part of the Shade's original name, according to Weird New Jersey. Some people have even claimed to see the dead walking along the road in the mist. Now, the rest of these roads in uh, the TikTok's Tops Most Haunted Roads list, let's, uh, let's start with 10. I mean, we know the first two, but let's start with 10 and count down. So the first one is Bragg Road. That's in Hardin County Park in the state of Texas. Um, it is haunted due to lights of Saratoga. These are mysterious lights that often appears out of nowhere, kind of like will o the wisps, I guess. Um, 86.8 thousand views on TikTok and over 1200 sightings of ghosts on this road. Nine a shades of death road in Warren County, New Jersey series of fatal occurrences. 107, um, 107 ghosts have been seen on there and 89.6 thousand views. Number eight comes in Boy Scout Lane, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. The fictional deaths of a troop of Boy Scouts, but that doesn't matter. It still has 202.2 thousand views with 246 odd sightings. Coming in at number seven is Sand Hill Road in Las Vegas, Nevada. There's The Legends of Restless Spirits Haunting the Underground Tunnels. Uh, It's 225,000 views on TikTok with 29 sightings. Coming at number six, of course, is Highway 666, which is now U.S. Route 491 in Gallup, New Mexico. There's a high fatality rate and a lot of of apparitions there, 52 sightings. Coming in at number five, Route 375 in Rachel, Nevada. Lots of UFO sightings there near the uh, entrance to the super secret, not-so-secret Area 51 with 29 sightings. Coming at number four is Resurrection Mary in Justice, Illinois, the hitchhiking ghost of Archer Avenue, 464-odd weird sightings. Number three, Dead Man's Curve in Cleveland, Ohio a faceless hitchhiker who died in a crash and numerous deadly traffic accidents, leading to 551 ghost sightings on the road. Um, Then number two, Riverdale Road between Thornton and Brighton in Colorado, urban legends of hauntings and phantom joggers with 145 sightings. And of course, as we said, number one, Clinton Road in West Milford, New Jersey, Ghost Boy Bridge with 107 sightings. So uh that's it the most frightening and scary haunted roads in America. All right, let's uh let's wrap up with one last one. Uh this one is really strange and that's coming from me. So uh, this is um from Smithsonian. So it's not some complete garbage. Is that archaeologists unearthed remains of infants wearing helmets made from the skulls of other children. Members of Ecuador's Guangala culture may have outfitted the infants in skulls as a protective measure. Archaeologists excavating a site in Salango, Ecuador, have discovered evidence of a burial ritual that might even make Indiana Jones shiver. As the researchers report in the Journal of Latin American Antiquity, excavations at a pair of 2,100-year-old funerary mounds revealed several unusual sets of remains. Namely, the skeletons of two infants wearing what appear to be bone helmets made from the skulls of older children. Members of the Guangal culture referred, uh, in, I'm sorry, culture interred the infants at Salango, an ancient ritual complex on the country's central coast, around 100 BC. Archaeologists unearthed the remains, as well as those of nine other individuals, many of whom were buried with small objects, including figurines, shells. And while conducting excavations between 2014 and 2016, per the study, the discovery represents the only known evidence of using juvenile crania as mortuary headgear found the date. One of the babies was around 18 months old at the time of death, while the second was between six and nine months old. As the study's author writes, the modified cranium of a second juvenile was placed in a helmet-like fashion around the head of the first, such that the primary individual's face looked through or out of the cranial vault of the second. The older infant's helmet originally belonged to a child aged four to 12 years old. Interestingly, the researchers found a small shell and a finger bone sandwiched between the two layered skulls. The second baby's helmet was fashioned from the cranium of a child between 2 and 12 years old. Well, that is grim. And there are pictures on here, so check out the show notes to see that. Perhaps most eerily, the older children's skulls likely still had flesh when they were outfitted over the infant's heads. Juvenile skulls often do not hold together if they are simply bare bone, the archaeologists note. We're still pretty shocked by the find, lead author Sarah Junkst of the University of North Carolina at Charlotte tells Forbes' Christina Kilgrove. Not only is it unprecedented, there are still so many questions. Potential explanations for the unexpected burials abound. DNA and isotope analysis currently underway may clarify whether the infants and children were related. But even if these tests fail to provide a definitive answer, Junks says the researchers definitely had a lot of ideas to work with. Speaking with New Atlas, Michael Irving Junks explained that heads were commonly depicted in iconography, pottery, stone, and with literal heads in pre-Columbia, South America. She adds they are generally representative of power, ancestors, and may demonstrate dominance over other groups, such as through the creation of trophy heads from conquered enemies. According to the paper, the helmets could have been intended to protect the deceased pre-social and wild souls as they navigated the afterlife. Other infants found in the funerary platform were buried with figurines placed near their heads, perhaps as a similar purpose. An alternative theory posits the skull helmets belonged to the infant's ancestors, and were actually worn in both life and death. Ooh. Jung said her colleagues often outline a tantalizing hypothesis centered on a volcano located near the burial site. Ash found that Salongo suggests the volcano was active and likely interfering with agriculture in the area, potentially subjecting the children to malnourishment and even starvation. Sian Halcrow, an archaeologist at New Zealand's University, Otago, whose research focuses on juvenile health and disease, tells Kilgrove that all four sets of bones showed signs of anemia. Another less likely explanation identifies the children as victims of a ritual designed to quiet the volcano. The The Ramones, yes, that's who it was. It was the Ramones. No, the remains show no sign of trauma. However, and as Junxt says to Newsweek Aristos Giorgio, the evidence suggests the four juveniles probably were quite ill anyway. The most plausible explanation, according to Junxt, is that Guangala outfitted the infants with skulls in reaction to some sort of natural or social disaster, and to ensure that these infants had extra protection or extra links to ancestors through their burials. While the unusual burial may seem macabre to modern readers, Junks tells Kilgrove she found the helmet strangely comforting. Dealing with the death of young infants is always emotional, she explains, but in this case it was strangely comforting that those who buried them took extra time and care to do it in a special place, perhaps accompanied by a special people in order to honor them. So yeah that was another weird one wasn't it well it has been fun it is good to be back uh this will be back being regular again i'm working on trying to scare up some guests and some people you know friends of mine and peeps to sit in and discuss some things and so uh thanks again for uh sticking it out and although some of you probably just haven't have a subscription and it just comes whether you want it or not. At least you haven't canceled it. And for that, I am thankful. But thank you, everyone. I really do appreciate it. And uh, settle in because there's more to come. Bizarro Aficionado is back. Have a good time, everybody. And uh, remember, stay bizarro. <music>
1: And Z's, I've been high above my ass Magic beans, magic beans Flying solo, Mr. Dolo, What you mean, what you mean? Ground control, of Major time Do you read, do you read? Smoking on gas, got me slunk Chasing Z's, chasing Z's I've been high above my ass Magic beans, magic beans Flying solo, Mr. Dolo, What you mean, what you mean? Ground control, of Major time Do you read? I'm back in the game Feeling myself, quick level up. Now I'm better myself. Every day, never take a break. Killing myself, addicted to the gold. Only focused on wealth. Still slide. To my 9 to 5. by the time till I'm on the rise. Passing off, I'm not ashing This ain't frat rap. tell the hate is off. I'm shining, so blinded. I survived with God. No diamonds, broke boy. Got nothing in my wallet. Spend on my green on the green quite often. Still flawless, stand tallin. and say fuck it to me. Face calling, time to ride the wave. Never ride the shade. Inhale the haze. I'm I love it. It's yes, yeah, cool. got me slump Chasing Z's, chasing Z's I've been high above my ass Magic beans, magic beans Flying solo, Mr. follow What you need, what you need Ground control to Major Tom Do you read, do you read it? Yeah.